0: Oh my god! Today on one song, we're gonna go harder and faster and good than we've ever been. D'Allo Riddle, you ready to go meddle with me?
1: You ready to go meddle with me, Riddle? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm gonna learn some stuff about a genre that I don't know a lot about.
0: That's a really fair and honest answer, and I appreciate that because I present to you a riff monster, a song bursting with musicianship, angst, badass music. A metal anthem, perhaps Metallica's most indelible, most influential, and most iconic track. This is Master of
1: Puppets. Today on One Song.
0: One Song! One Song! Welcome to One Song, it's your favorite show! Things about music that you need to know! Hosted by luxury, that is my name! And Yolo
1: Riddle and he's not the same! After this episode of One Song! One Song! He'll never be the same after this show. I'll, I'll be the same. I'll be the same. One song. One song. One song. I'm actor, writer, director, and sometimes DJ, yellow Riddle.
0: And I'm producer, DJ, and
1: songwriter Luxury, also known as the guy who whispers intermalation. And this is one song. Now, Luxury, you chose today's song, Master of Puppets. That's the song on today's episode. I guess let's just start here. Why? Why this song? Why is it special? You know,
0: it's funny. Like, there is a real question. This
1: show so far, Metallica seems a little
0: bit of an outlier. And in fact, it wasn't on the short list for me when we first put together our dream list of songs mm. for season one. Out of our years of experience as music fans, we we had a hard time coming up with like yeah. the right songs. It's yeah. really important to us to pick them. And it took me a minute to realize that buried deep in my psyche, in my youth, was this major moment of my life as a teenage boy where Metallica was everything to me. Wow. Both as a person, like because of what they were singing about, the aggression of the music, but also as a budding musician, like I was learning instruments and Metallica, like I literally brought, this is how I learned guitar. I'm showing.
1: Oh, snap. For you're those watching who the video. are just listening to the podcast, he has brought out the advanced edition <laughs> uh, guitar. Uh, what would you call this? This is the this is guitar tabs. This is
0: how you learn guitar. Yeah. If you're a young metal head is they've got all the notes like classical theory, but they also just have where your finger should go. <laughs> and so it's like a simplified version with the numbers. It, like, it's just, it's, it's, it's before there was YouTube. It's how you would have learned guitar. And uh, yeah, this is where I began as a musician, as well as it being such an important part of my life. Was this the life. first
1: music that you played guitar to?
0: It might have been, if it wasn't literally the first song, it was certainly the first where I would buy a book like this to try and master the entire but album.
1: I, I, You know what? I'm going to ask you a question about yourself The a lot today. Uh, <laughs> did you learn, because we're both drummers, did you learn the drums first? Because I learned the yes. drums and I was good. I never learned any other instrument. Thank you, public schools, but <laughs> I wish I had. Yeah. But you learned the drums first, and then at some point you transitioned to guitars?
0: Yeah, I started on drums when I was in high school, and I had—I think I've mentioned before two of my best friends, shout out to Scott Stafford and Alex Mandel, they were the master guitar players, so I couldn't keep up with them, and I was like, I want to I hang out with these guys musically, so I learned <laughs> drums so I could hang with them. So uh-huh. I would be behind them at school assemblies where but they But at would, some
1: point you were like, I'm going to learn that instrument. It was actually
0: at the end of high school that I bought my first guitar from the wow. aforementioned Alex the Mandel. School. Okay. Yeah. I I bought my first guitar and I and I bought this book and I that's where I started to learn. <laughs>
1: Shout out to Scott and Alex. Uh, Tell me about the first time you heard Metallica. (laughs)
0: Um, All right. So this is like one of those life moments that you never forget because it changed the course of history for me. But I was in high school, probably sophomore year. And it was one of those break periods in between classes. And a friend of mine had to leave to his class. And he gave me his Walkman. And I put it on. I'd never heard Metallica before. And he had been listening. This is Ari Gold. Shout out to Ari Gold. This is the episode (laughs) where I shout out all my high school homies. Um, So Ari Gold's Walkman. He was playing a Metallica song. And not only was he playing a song, I'm gonna play it for you in a minute. This is the part of the song that he played for me, which like destroyed my little brain.
1: Why did you destroy your little? brain was <laughs> song, it was it the aggression that you heard like what was it what
0: was it i'm going to play it and then we'll talk about it because it, it's hard for me to articulate so okay. part of the beauty of music is you don't have to you just listen or talk
1: we're so, not dancing about architecture we're not dancing
0: about architecture which was the original title of the show by the way and, and i think <laughs> we made a good choice with the with the one song change so this song is called fight fire with fire it's from metallica's previous record ride the lightning before the master of puppets record and this is what i would have heard on a, a on a you know spring afternoon Uh, when I was in high school. And I was like, what? That moment of those, that moment of those 16th notes on the kick drums. That's crazy. This is a human
1: being doing this. Yes. And not just any human being.
0: Like, in time, to the tempo, and for like a long
1: duration. <laughs> and not
0: oh and not just God. any
1: human being, but a pretty famous one.
0: <laughs> right. So this is Lars Ulrich. By the way, on this episode, we're going to talk about Lars Ulrich. We're going to talk about all the members of Metallica. Lars Ulrich, we kind of alluded to in a previous episode mm-hmm. where we talked about drummers, right? We talked yeah. about... He is in the same category a little bit with maybe Meg White from The White Stripes and Ringo Starr from The Beatles, where these are musicians that are often maligned. Malign, right? uh-huh. They're people that are like, well, the band would be better if.
1: Well, I, I I malign Lars because he's the guy who came after Napster and always seemed to me. We'll, we'll get into my first impressions of Metallica because a lot of That's it has fair. very little to do with the music and more of what they were saying in like the the public sphere
0: but this was teenage aggression yeah and that's what i had a lot of in that moment and this at the time i would have been listening to again alluding to previous episodes if you haven't heard our new order episode blue monday that was like i was listening to a lot of like synth pop and sort of post-punk and i i I still loved it but this was it this switched a new gear on in for me this was like an aggressive this spoke to that feeling of like why don't girls like me? Why doesn't it? You know, like all, <laughs> a million different questions that flow through your hormone-addled body at that age. Yeah. And um, so this metal music was kind of the lock turning the key a little that's bit. That's so for me interesting. In that and
1: this, was, this wasn't senior year of high school. When was this? This
0: exactly? was, I, I'm going to say sophomore year. Oh, yeah, because Ari was two years older than me. It's helpful to have that reference point. You so know, that I, think, I think that's, school. I
1: think, look, there are a couple of things I really, really want to say real quick. First is that, I, You know, suspiciously, everybody feels like music was never as good as when they were <laughs> suspiciously between the ages of, like, 15 and 25. Right. Like, I think your brain is just open to things in a new way. I agree. Second thing I want to say is that I had a similar reaction to the very first time someone put on a Public Enemy CD for me. Like, oh, wow. the very first time I heard that, it was like everything else fell away, and I was like, why doesn't all music sound? Like, in a weird way, that was my teen aggression, just think about it, was – Public Enemy Fear of a Black Planet. I remember the first time I heard that, it just seemed like... This is what music is supposed to sound like. Speaking of Public Enemy, Anthrax, would they be considered metal?
0: Yeah, they would be considered metal. I want to get back to that in a second, but I'm curious which song did it for you. What was your fight fire with fire moment, if you can It was remember? actually
1: the very first song on Fear of a Black Planet. Uh, they actually played the CD from the very beginning, and I, you know, it, it said something about me, I think. It was the intro. It was cinematic. It felt like I was watching a film. Contract on the world, I think is what it's called. Uh, it's not even a song necessarily. It's just a series of voice samples over a drum, and uh, it it really just turned me on. So to, like it was like, oh wait, this is what and music is supposed or to 15 sound 15 like. at this time. Too? Yeah, yeah. Like there was something about that song when I heard it. I all of a sudden like that was what I wanted to hear a whole lot more of. So I I, I hear so I play? you. I want to hear it now. Yeah, let's let, let is this, just play a little bit right of thing? it. Yeah, the beginning. The very beginning okay. of the
0: album. Let's hear a little snippet of that song. This is Public Enemy, Contract on the World Love Jam. Some foreign power, some group of terrorists.
1: <laughs> some individual concern. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard it, it felt like somebody was watching CNN with hip-hop playing on the in the background. That's you know, so there was something... So and you never heard
0: that. that kind of sound I hadn't really before. that was the
1: bomb squad who produced that album um at that point I went back and listened to it takes a nation of millions to hold us back uh you know they they just had their own sound and like nobody was doing and everybody from the dust brothers to the chemical brothers like so many electronic groups in the 90s we're like, oh, yeah, those Bomb Squad productions for Public Enemy had a huge influence. Flatboy Slim, they were all like, they had a huge influence right. on us. But getting back to Metallica, let me just say right at the top of this episode, I, I want to state this pretty clearly. <laughs> I have so much respect. I consider myself a music nerd, but I have enough respect for metal as a genre that I will admit right at the top to all of our listeners, I don't know this genre. Like, to me, and we'll get into this a little bit later, it sort of came with a fandom, like the people who listen to metal. Like I didn't know where they were coming from. And as a result, like I didn't understand. It's weird that I understood punk and I understand how punk is different from metal. I understood punk in ways that I, to this day don't actively, you know, know metal. And I want to know about like the different genres within metal. I want to know the difference between metal and other forms of rock. And we're going to get into all that, but I'm going to, I'm going to come into this episode and let everybody know that I am learning in this episode. I don't know this genre. I always feel like metal and country, you know, and I feel like even in country, like the Hank Williams, you know, era of country, I, I could probably talk about that more than I could talk about metal. I know a handful of groups in this genre. Um, but you're going to be teaching me this episode, so I wanted to make that very clear from the start. Okay, so before we get into Master of Puppets, I was hoping that you would just tell me and some of the folks who don't know what is thrash metal, yeah. and, and specifically, what is the difference between hard rock right? And metal, right? Because I, you know, yeah, yeah. Please tell me.
0: I mean, at some point in the '60s, we've got like white people starting to play like blues music and adding some distortion, and you get like the Stones. I love the Kinks. They get the Kinks. I love the Kinks. Well, and not just white people. You got like you got Hendrix. You got Santana. This music starts to become known as as hard rock. It's harder because it's maybe it's a little louder. It's maybe the drums are a little louder. Some of that is how it's played. Some of it is production through the '70s. Sabbath,
1: right? And Sabbath absolutely
0: comes in there. And I would say that Sabbath, Zeppelin, into Sabbath we have kind of a shift happening partially because of the sound gets a little darker, Mm -hmm. but also thematically Sabbath starts to introduce these, you know, (laughs) topics topically. They're more about like horror movies and darkness. Yeah. yeah. So that all starts to coagulate. They're called black Sabbath and they're called black Sabbath. It's right there in the (laughs) title. Don't have to look much further. That starts to in the seventies and then queen A lot of bands are what I would call hard rock, but there's with Sabbath a little bit of metal beginning out of the ashes, so to speak, of hard rock. So where one begins and one ends, it's kind of a fool's errand to try to chase like, well, you've got like Sabbath albums that literally have ballads on them. So it's like there's a lot of eclecticism in there. But in the 70s, hard rock starts to turn into punk rock. Punk rock, you know, from the Stooges through the Ramones yep. into the Sex Pistols—that's just rock music. That's kind of a little faster and topically, it's a little more political. So the changes that are happening sonically are a little subtle, but they're—they've got a lot to do with loudness, distorted guitars, and speed. I would argue, sonically, mm. outside of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to Metallica forming in 1981-ish, um, and by the way, side note, uh, shout out to—I'm wearing this T-shirt. You can't see it, but there's a radio station called KUSF, and there's a pretty funny story about how Metallica got their name. Uh, the guy who, at the time, Ron Quintana, was running a fanzine, and he met Lars when they were young and, and touring in San Francisco, and he really liked the band. He really mm-hmm. liked this unnamed metal band. and he's They like, were unnamed? At the time, they had an earlier version of the name, which is lost to my memory, at least. Mm-hmm. It may exist on somebody's notepad somewhere. But they said, this guy, Ron Quintana, says, hey guys, I'm starting a metal zine. I'm either going to call it Metal Mania or Metallica? What do you think? <laughs> and according to legend, Lars goes, Metal Mania is a great name. <laughs> and he took the and other And he one. took Metallica for what himself. What a jerk. According, <laughs> according to legend, this is how the origin of the name Metallica. So shout out <laughs> to uh, Ron seems Quintana. Very seems very Lars. <laughs> it seems very Lars to do that and be like you know I think the best name of those two is definitely Metal Mania. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Metallica uses the name Metallica and then Ron Quintana goes on to do a, a show called Rampage Radio which he still does to this day and this is the radio station that I used to work at in, in high school so I met him at the time and it was a big deal to me to know the guy who named Metallica. There's a lot of a lot of Teenage me is is happening here on this episode, I realize,
1: but <laughs> but I but but I, but I want to talk about because, like, um, well, you know, when we were preparing for this episode, at one China. point on your guitar, you were playing the song Barracuda, yeah, which yeah, I yeah. do know. yeah, yeah, by but heart. I feel like you said that's more hard rock, yeah. maybe not pure metal. What's the difference between hard rock and metal?
0: So again, like uh, anticipating that there's a lot of like, yes, buts in this yeah. topic, I would say the difference between hard rock and heavy metal has a lot, or excuse me, hard rock. Into thrash metal specifically, uh-huh. which Metallica is thrash metal. One right. of the big four, as they're called—Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax, and Slayer—are considered the big four of the specific subgenre of heavy metal called thrash, <laughs> which I'll explain to you. Adds the punk energy and speed, mm. arguably. Okay. And some of the attitude, some of the lyrics, lyrical content, but mostly, I would say it's about speed. Because prior to this, you know, there's Iron Maiden has a couple of fast songs, but for the most part. Barracuda, Zeppelin, all these hard rock bands in the 70s, they are not doing 260 BPM, like crazy riff-oriented Well, 260 is songs.
1: just 130, technically. And it's 65, I mean, technically. You, you heard, you heard <laughs> Fight Fire With
0: Fire. Like, Hart and Led Zeppelin are not doing yeah, like, yeah. those are insane breakneck tempos. So a big <laughs> part of it is the punk speed aspect, which, you know, if you go back to the Ramones, the Ramones are sort of like just sped up Shangri la songs with crunchier guitars, and in, mm. in a way, it's very girl groups but faster. A lot of bubblegum pop in those early punk. I mean, records. I feel like I'm
1: not going to win a lot of fans uh, in the metal community with some of my <laughs> so some of my opinions on this because. But but by the way, they're they're born out of my ignorance of the genre. To me, one of the reasons I think I one of the reasons I, I probably did not get into metal is because, to me, the one of the fun things about punk is that it is raw, and that is so like it's just it's just raw and it yeah. feels unfinished and i feel like a lot of times when i think about metal i think of these like very like almost like harpsichord things that they're doing with the guitar like <laughs> right, right, right. and you're just like man that guy sounds classically trained on guitar but it doesn't it's it's not it, it it lacks that rawness and punk, but you're saying that there actually is wow. that punk thread in Thrash Metal. But you're actually you're actually
0: tapping into something specifically with Metallica that makes them interesting, mm-hmm. that there is this, a rawness and a sloppiness in some ways oh, to okay. some of the performances, but it's also mixed with specifically like in this
1: song and in this era of the band when Metallica still had Cliff Burton in the band, the bass player. This album comes out in 1986. Where is Metallica at this point in their career? I've heard of Cliff Burton uh, through my nephew, who is a metalhead. Uh, and he was the bassist, correct? And he was the guy who, like, because he's sort of the reason why early Metallica albums don't sound like the later Metallica albums, right? right. Like, He's
0: a little bit the, the answer to your question about, uh, he's part of the reason why Metallica is so special, because he did bring a music, musicology aspect. Like he is a storied musician with yeah. a lot of, he understood he was into Bach and Beethoven. What you're describing when you, were, when you talk about classical is likely to be some of the choices he made melodically, yeah. some of which we're going to hear when we get into the stems in a minute. But Cliff brought in a very deep musicianship, which Lars and James, they had a lot of energy. They had a lot of ideas. <laughs> Their musicianship certainly developed over time, but on day one, they are more coming from a punk ethos of let's mm-hmm. just do this. We're good enough which is another part of what I love about punk. And I think that is part of why Metallica and Thrash Metal, it has at its core a little bit of all of those things happening. As was
1: told to me, they go down to Los Angeles and they see this bassist who is playing with another band and they absolutely fall in love with him. And then they're like, dude, you have to come and, and, and join our band. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll consider it, but there's no way I want to be a part of a corporate band. Is that, is that- sort of, did I get that story right?
0: I don't know about the corporate band part. That would make sense. I mean, you have to remember Cliff Burton famously kind of looks like this disheveled hippie uh-huh. like with his long hair and bell-bottom jeans and he had a mustache. <laughs> he did not look like kind of the like
1: sunset Stere- st- stereotypical hair metal band. Not guy. at all, which I mean,
0: this was a new it was sort of developing at yeah, the time. Yeah. We weren't at Motley Crew levels yet, although yeah. they were around the corner, but he definitely looked a little bit out of place. Yeah. Although I've since learned that it's been described, his hair has been described, even though it looks in photographs like he's a disheveled hippie, Apparently, it was immaculately combed and very clean. He (laughs) smelled nice, which is a very interesting detail about... Shout out to
1: clean-smelling men.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're right about the formation of the band. At a certain point, uh, Dave Mustaine, who later went on to famously, after being kicked out, Metallica, went on to form Megadeth. Megadeth, He's the original guitar player. It's the four of them. At a certain point, uh, he gets kicked out. And uh, Kirk Hammett joins the band and they do, they go on to record their first three records, "Kill 'Em All, which is originally called Metal Up Your Ass, <laughs> uh, Ride the Lightning, which I just alluded to, that song Fight Fire With Fire is on their, their, their uh, second record. And then they record this, their magnum opus, Master of Puppets, which comes out in 86 with this classic lineup. And then, unfortunately, tragedy hits as um, we were just discussing earlier. Yeah,
1: I mean, like uh, burdens on the bus, and there's an accident in Sweden, right? Right.
0: Yeah, they're they're on a tour promoting a promotional tour, and and it just he's dead.
1: He like. I mean, like it's a pretty brutal. Death, too. This
0: is before there was a lot of safety measures. You know, I've done deep dives on this because we all want to know why did Cliff die, and apparently they're just like the window just... He was thrown out the window, and then the bus lands on him. It's like almost like comic overkill. It's it's horrible, Um, and it's tragic, and this is the last record that he ever made with Metallica, and sort of the rest of their career, you know, they're very... Uh, reverent towards towards cliff and, mm-hmm. and you know how seminal how important he was to the band 's DNA like all these elements that came together really were cemented with with his musicality and his choices and his he doesn't he plays bass unusually and we 'll hear this in a minute not with a pick but with his fingers so this is cliff 's last album and he 's on this song and we 'll hear him in a second we 'll hear his unique performance style
1: yeah so Burton absolutely a legend but let's 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 go let 's start at the beginning here let's do uh that. let 's build up master puppet so the first stim you want to play for us what where, where, where are we starting
0: we're gonna hear a little Lars Ulrich on drums and uh, this is from the pre-chorus section and I'll get into a minute like the significance of calling something the pre-chorus that's a real choice I've made <laughs> um, because there are nine different sections of this song so this is one of these nine sections and here we go Lars Ulrich raw I just want to say, I mean, part of this, maybe a lot of it. I think we're doing the full episodes, by the way. We should just give a shout out because a lot of people ask. There are full episodes of this show. It's a podcast, but on YouTube, you can watch the video version. So mm-hmm. just now I could not help but air drum. Yeah, you were air It is a, I don't know if it's a disease. <laughs> I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing, but my entire life, beginning with the Metallica years in high school, Listen, especially for a track like this, I cannot airdrum every single There are fill certain and lick.
1: songs I will I will say Oasis is uh fucking in the bushes. <laughs> I can't I always airdrum to that. It uh, doesn't, how doesn't matter you know where I, I am. Is there a human (laughs) being? By the way, clearly I just like the intros to albums because that isn't a song either. That's just an intro. Um Tell us, I mean, like, by the way, I'm just gonna rip the band-aid off. Lars, as a person who's not a Metallica fan, Lars comes across as a dick to the rest of the world. Like, he does not seem like when I think about metal people, I'll be honest, my opinion has changed over time. When I was a kid, you know, like they seem like They were the bullies, you know, quite honestly, in school. You know, that was probably because I was raised on 80s and early 90s movies where, like, the person who's dressed (laughs) like metal is inevitably, like, the drug dealer you run into in an alley and he wants to beat you up. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Hollywood taught me. Um, Now I know that people who are into metal are some of the warmest, usually, like, the nicest, you know— closeted nerds if you will (laughs) that you can ever run into present company accepted but Lars does not seem like that he seems like a dick is that am I completely wrong to me he's the guy who sued Napster and is like way too rich is that fair is Lars a dick
0: I'm trying to like stay measured in this show and I, I know
1: will, we never come at people at the show. We always stay positive. <laughs> I'm just I'm speaking on the behalf of those who've seen him in but interviews. But it's not
0: really a hot take. You know, <laughs> let's face it. Like this is a pretty pervasive feeling. He didn't do himself any favors with the whole Napster episode where he comes out and as a millionaire and, you know, <laughs>
1: sues "I need more boots! Sue's children for downloading, <laughs> that's my Lars, I mean, his that's song
0: my... to so he doesn't make that dollar. <laughs> like yeah. that was not a good move for PR from a PR standpoint, I would say. And then he doesn't do himself a lot of favors when he's being interviewed and you can tell like I was listening to Stern interview them and the interview was over and Stern was like thanks for coming on it was a two hour interview and Lars was like I got one more thing to say and then there's a five more minutes of like a soliloquy from <laughs> Lars
1: Ulrich so I like that you use Stern like that I, I want to be like to some of our listeners Howard Stern is the Steve Harvey of white radio all right <laughs> I don't know if we're gonna be he's, he's the Tom Joyner of uh, another station that you may not be listening to. Uh, I'm sorry go ahead no I, I that's, <laughs> but seriously, I mean, like between Lars and James Hetfield, are, you know, the, their collaboration is that of legend. Like, exactly. are they the are they the metal Lennon and McCarthy? That's a great question,
0: and I would actually answer yes. The way they write music, from what I understand, it starts with James basically making riffs, and mm. they would make these things called riff tapes, and they would just compile riff after riff. And again, when we get to the guitars, you'll hear exactly what I mean because, especially their earliest compositions, their first three records. When you once you know this you're like oh I can see how this song unfolded. So James is the riff master and Lars is according to what I understand, the two of them sit down, they listen to the riff tapes and they decide, hey, this would go well after this one. This could go with this. Hey, this is its own song. And they kind of arrange things together. And the songwriting process really goes down that way. And, and the way they're writing sometimes, I'm sure, is, is Lars, they're playing, they're probably performing together as well, like Lars is playing drums. But the main thing is they come up with all of these individual ideas and then piece them together to form a song together collectively. I love that. One more thing I just want to say about this whole riff tape idea and their songwriting process is that there's something funny I heard. Uh, I heard Lars mention in an interview that like back in the days before they even had the tape machines, or maybe they would be like sitting in front of the TV writing something and they didn't have the tape machine available. You know, how would they remember the riff? Was the, the question was asked. And the answer was they would just con- like Kirk would just sit there and he'd play it over and over again to make sure he wouldn't forget. And then the next day when they finally had access to a tape machine if they'd forgotten it then it just it wasn't good enough anyway so they would just let it go but like the sign of a good riff was like oh yeah the next day I remembered it so I can record it so I thought that was pretty funny
1: after the break we'll be getting deeper into the meaning of Master of Puppets and we can't do a Metallica episode without talking about Some Kind of Monster the documentary we'll be right back Welcome back to one song. Back to Master of Puppets. There's one more drum thing you want to play for us. Yeah. Here's a little more Lars Ulrich in the nude.
0: <laughs> I, I sounded oh, like that. It's just him playing drums. He's not naked. So there's, it, it, he's not to there is. It's not perfectionist. It's not perfectionist. It's a little messy. It's a little sloppy. Yeah. But that's and, sort of uh, the goal, right? But it a sounds great. Yeah. And uh, in the mix, it sounds dope. In fact, <laughs> I'll play that part for you in a minute uh, with, with some of the other sections so you can hear how it all gels together. In fact, if you'd like to move on to the bass section, let's get into that Cliff Burton magic.
1: I mean... That sounds incredibly <laughs> difficult to play. It's pretty hard to
0: play, and it's two fingers doing sixteenth notes, like in time to the meter to a very fast wow. tempo. Uh, Cliff was kind of a genius in that way, and his sound—that rumble, that low growl—is mm-hmm. he put a lot of time and effort into getting his sound, you know, in the mix. Like he wanted to shape how he sounded. I love that, uh, and that happens also a little bit more with fingers. That's part of the reason why bass players play with fingers is you have more control. With, you you can control with a pick as well, but it's just a different type of control. Mm-hmm. It's more personal. You're really getting into the, no, he's, the he's, string. He's trying to find a in. sound, yeah,
1: and that was his way of getting there.
0: Yeah, and your, your dynamics, you're loud and soft. You have a little more control over that too. So I love that. Just, I
1: mean, like as a creative, like I think the hardest thing is to figure out how to take what's in your head, whether it's a sound or a TV show or whatever, and to be able to deliver it as close to what got you excited when it was just a thought in your head.
0: Yeah, I think Cliff had a vision for how it all fit in the mix. So I'll play you another section. This is Cliff's bass part in the pre-chorus, and then I'll add uh, Lars halfway
1: through. Yeah, let's build it it up. Blends.
0: So when you hear Cliff in the mix there with Lars, how tightly they come together, it just sounds so satisfying, right? I'm gonna play you one more really cool part. This is from the slow section in the middle where the solos happen. And now let me just isolate. Here's what Cliff was playing during that section. That's James Hetfield's solo, by the way. A rare thing that James does on this song is actually play one of the solos. And here's Cliff. So you were talking earlier about classical music. I mean, that, that to me, yeah. it could be like a, a little box. But you know, it figure. feels different.
1: I mean, like you know, when you when you play the 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 Headfield moments, I'm like, okay, all right, this sounds like metal. But I feel like the bass is just a welcoming instrument. Like it kind of doesn't matter. Like I remember I got into the Red Hot Chili Peppers primarily because I love Flea. Mm-hmm. I loved what Flea was doing. Um, the song Excursions, first song. Off of The Low oh, what End album? Theory what by is that? A Tribe Called Quest. The thing I like about that one is that if you bring in the drums differently, it could be a system of a down song. You know what I yeah. mean? Like there's something about not don't 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 do like the bass is just it welcomes you in no matter what genre it's you're into. It's, yeah, a melody. Just it's something and it's it's it's
0: it tickles it tickles the pleasure centers because it's doing <laughs> it's it's playing almost like a sing- singable melody, yes, and not just sort of laying down the groove like maybe an A C D C song that just plays the boom don't don't or you know Van Halen dum, I dum, totally dum, agree. I totally
1: agree. Guitar is a more of an acquired taste than in the sense that like what it does is more akin to singing. And sometimes you're into the type of singing or you're not. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how that works out. Luxury, what could you tell me about your lifestyle determines your death style?
0: <laughs> well, the first thing I can tell you is that just hearing those lines together, I have a little cringe part of my body just does this, like like when you're trying to get the bowling ball to go a certain way. I'm like, oh. there's a fantastic documentary about Metallica. Right. It's called some kind of monster. Yep. It details the making of the album Saint Anger, which is not my favorite record.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it makes me think. Actually, it's so funny. You know that? Have you ever seen that Weezer SNL uh, sketch? where Leslie Jones yes, and yes. Matt Damon have this wonderful... <laughs> kind, of, kind of a
1: modern SNL classic.
0: It's like a dinner table argument about Weezer's first three records, kind of their first <laughs> two records, yeah. um, and Leslie is taking the position like, they were never the same after Pinkerton. <laughs> and that's a little bit the case, I think, for a lot of Metallica fans, myself yeah. included. It's these. First, I'm related to one. It's these first three records, it is... Kill them all. It is ride the lightning, and it is master puppets, and yeah. we'll give we'll give. And justice for all, maybe a little side eye, but we like and justice for all. All right, it has no bass content because Cliff Burton dies, and right. the new bass player takes over, Jason Newstead, and they're like razzing him so much that they turn his bass down on the album. This strange cutting well, it, off your it, nose to spite your face thing. the
1: sound of the band. The you band, know, I, I feel like it's a very different sounding That record
0: band. has no bass in it. It's a very strange in, audio it, experience. I
1: was going to say, in preparing for this episode, yeah. I did go and listen to those first three albums. And it didn't sound like, when I think of Metallica, yeah. it, it it was a different sound yeah, than yeah. the one I was thinking about. Uh, but for those people who haven't seen the documentary, yeah. Uh, some kind of monster can you walk us through what it is and why it's so groundbreaking
0: for sure and just to like finish i backed up a lot to get to that the answer to the my lifestyle determines my death style is that that is the song that is saint anger the album they're making in this documentary and that is definitely not my favorite metallica period i'll just say that it is a line that to me is a little bit like oh man first thought best thought not always maybe (laughs) maybe you should have workshopped that one a little more
1: uh, for the people who haven't seen it, can you can you walk us through? what is some kind of monster, and why is it so groundbreaking?
0: I think everyone should see some kind of monster, even if you're not a Metallica fan. If nothing else, you will see, it's basically, the, it's a documentary. It's a film crew following them as they're making their album, which turns out to be St. Anger, but in the middle of it, they happen to capture, as the best documentaries do, real life happening. James quits the band. He goes to rehab. There's fighting. There's arguing. There's like a new producer. There's a therapist, this man with funny shirts, uh, excuse me, sweaters, Phil <laughs> Towel. They They hire a band psychiatrist, Because when James comes back, there's like this whole new dynamic, and you're watching this all unfold, and your jaw's on the floor, because this is a heavy metal band, and they're talking about their feelings, (laughs) and in 2003, 2004, when this movie's out, that's- kind of a revelation. Right. This, this is a genre that is about just
1: it's like kind of sopranos, toxic masculinity. The Sopranos of, of metal music.
0: That's a great analogy. This is like, this the genre of heavy metal is very much about like aggression and anger and it's not about your feelings. And I mean, it kind of is buried in there, but the outward display, it's metal and spikes and you know, all of this like gear, right? And that's meant to convey this sort of protective layer, this armor, which in this documentary you see James kind of a light bulb go off and he's like, all of this anger comes from my past and my mom and we were a Christ- they were Christian scientists mm. so they didn't believe in medicine and his mom dies of cancer and they didn't treat her and he's angry and understandably so. So, knowing that backstory with James, I think, gives you kind of some insight into like these first few records where it's just rage and their nickname was Alcoholica because they drank all the time and like <laughs> they're living this hedonistic life and it's fueled by anger. And this album they make in the movie is called Saint Anger. You're watching him figure out anger, you're watching him figure out what it is for him and how to use that energy in a more positive way. He's using it in his music in a great way, but in his life, it's very destructive. So just one more thing I wanted to say about James and the anger. And by the way, my teenage Blake and his adolescent rage against nothing. I'm not sure what I was raging against, but it is a universal feeling, right? This rage, especially as a young person with not a lot of power in the world. You're you're going to school because you have no choice. You're supposed to go, right? So much of that just like makes a lot of sense. And um, I remember hearing this, a different Metallica song from a little bit later, which with my later understanding of James as a person in his life made even more sense to me. I'm gonna play it for you now. This is a moment from from Dyer's Eve from the Injustice for All album. I get chills listening to this song to this day. Like it really affects me deeply for reasons that like I need a therapist or maybe you <laughs> maybe the listeners can explain why. But this next lyric really does it for me. And this is James expressing his rage extremely articulately. And this is Dyer's Eve by Metallica. Dear mother, dear father. So this is a universal sentiment. Do as
1: I say, not as I do. Dear I mother, mean, like, dear father. Yeah, that's you, some teenage stuff. Dear mother, dear father, <laughs>
0: you clipped my wings before I learned to fly. Mm. Unspoiled, unspoken, I've outgrown that fucking lullaby. Same thing I've always heard from you. Do as I say, not as I do. Now,
1: I will say, and I'm going to sound like a parent here, <laughs> uh, but usually when they're talking about hip-hop, they're like, I can't understand what they're saying. I can usually understand hip-hop. It's there's so many layers of the music here. It's hard for me to hear. Uh, Guitars obviously play a very prominent role in this song. Can you walk us through some guitar stems?
0: Guitars are everything in this band and in this song. It's absolutely true. Um, I want to talk a little bit about musicianship. This is a Mm. band. We've already talked a little bit about like you know the double bass, drumming, and you've got to be if you're a metal. Performer, if you're a metal band instrumentalist, Mm -hmm. you are very good at your instrument because you've got to be very technical to play quickly and accurately and to get your scales and to get your notes. And these guitar solos are like incredibly fast. There's a lot of technicality, basically, that goes into this genre, unlike, say, punk rock. is In punk rock, it is literally a DIY ethos. That's a big part of what punk rock is. It's like anyone can pick up a guitar and three chords, and you've written a song, right? The Ramones and the Stooges are not technical players. Another distinction, I would say, with metal is that you really you need to be a very good instrumentalist to be a metal performer, to play in a metal band. So we've got the speed thing. Um, And I would say sort of a contrast to that, interestingly, in these guitars, you'll hear it. There's not a lot of sonic differentiation from one part of the song to the next, from one album to the next even. Like Metallica kind of always sounds like Metallica. They have a guitar sound that's present all the time with slight variations. But crunchy guitars, that's what the sound of metal is. That's the sound of Metallica. So you'll hear that in a moment when I play for you some of these guitar stems. One last thing I'll say before we get into it is I mentioned earlier about the riff tapes, right? And these songs are constructed by James and Lars, you know, accumulating riff ideas. So in this song, this is an eight and a half minute song. And there are no less than nine distinctly different riffs across the song. And once you know their process, it's kind of interesting to listen back and be like, oh, they just decided that this this riff they had on tape five should go with this riff from tape seven. Because there isn't necessarily a logic to it. It's just like, we need to do something different now. So that's kind of a funny thing about these early Metallica records. They're like prog rock. They're like, yes, or Rush, or even Genesis, or just one thing and then another thing. <laughs> in fact, I've got a really funny quote from Lars I read in this, in this Metallica book where he says, sometimes they'd be like, fuck it. It's only seven and a half minutes. We've got to put more riffs in there. <laughs> so they would—they knew exactly what they were doing. And they were like aiming for like the nine, 10 minute mark, I guess, for some of their songs, just because that was their aesthetic. They, To them, that was like a fuck you to the pop song, three and a half minute format. They're just like, that's never going to be us. This is what uh-huh. we do. Okay. So I'm going to play for you. This is James Hetfield. Uh, and this is arguably the main riff from Master of Puppets by Metallica. Although it is actually the third riff you'll hear in the song. And there's one thing I want to say about that. It's been hotly debated on the internet. What exactly is the time signature of that? Because I was just, just about to ask. Is yeah. this three,
1: four time? That's what a great gra-
0: exactly. So I was literally gonna ask that. I'll play it for you in the mix so you can hear what's happening. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. One. But it it kind of comes in early. So it could be technically done, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one. It could be where they drop one, so it's a bar of three. So three. Dun dun to regular bars of four. And then, but it's kind of not precise. And there are some technical dissections on the internet where people go in and they're like, well, actually it's 2132. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it gets the precision. I was going to say, in my humble opinion, this is four guys playing music and feeling how to have that moment take place. Yeah, It's not precise rhythmically to like the, met- the metronome.
1: In defense yeah. of time signature weirdness, uh, it does elicit a reaction, right? End, you know, like and and absolutely, like that that it leaves that, you a little breathless. Yeah, well, that that jumping of the last, you know, beat or whatever yeah. it is, it is it, it speaks to the aggression. It's like I won't even play that last beat. <laughs> I'm going where I want to go right now. You know, like it's just it's very visceral.
0: <laughs> right, right. The anger takes the form of reducing, 100%. changing the meter by dropping. it. Yeah,
1: yeah. There are no rules. Fuck that beat, man. Fuck that fourth beat. I won't play as you play, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's metal to me I'm guessing you got more guitar stuff for me Hit me with it The
0: hardest part of this song is Out of the nine riffs Which riffs do I play And which do I not play So <laughs> There this, are many riffs There are so many riffs Here is technically what I'm just going to call this the pre-chorus We heard This is what I played earlier With the drums and the bass So I'll play you the guitar And then you'll hear how it all fits together This is that come crawling faster section Okay, so I just quickly want to play for you the one and only interpolation, potentially, in this song. This has been widely discussed. You know, we don't, we're not sample snitches on here. But this is kind of a fun thing to hear. So there's this moment in what would technically be the ninth riff in the song. <laughs> I'll play for you the guitar part, and then I'll play it for you in the mix, and then I'll show you what it might have come from. That reminds me a little bit of this. It's got a little bit of that David Whoa. Bowie, Andy Warhol. It's not exact, but you know no, they heard that song. I, I, I hear it. You know I hear they heard it. That I mean, song. like, we're not stitching.
1: We're not snitching. Not snitching this but, is out there, but but influences. Look, you're going to wear your influences on your sleeve or on I your shirt.
0: To, to me, that's an homage. That's a <laughs> that's a that's a shout out. That's a shout out to their love of Bowie. You know, that's that's what that is.
1: I will say that, um, yeah, I'm seeing more and more the the, the through line between metal and classical. Mm-hmm. And I've always told people like I like classical, but I prefer jazz because I feel like jazz is more spontaneous and improvisational. Obviously, and. I feel like maybe that's why I like punk, because I feel like there's more, even even when I'm, gosh, even when I'm directing a scene, not writing it, not acting in it, but directing it, mm-hmm. um, even though there's some room for this in acting, when you're directing a scene, especially like a oneer, and then something unexpected happens that you could have never planned, but you're like, oh, that messed up the whole shot, or, oh, that was magical, I could have never planned that. Like, to me, that's part of the joy of the creation, yeah. and I'm just trying to figure out, like, you know maybe jazz is to punk as classical is to metal because i feel like these guys are such technicians yeah it's very precise it's very precise and uh you know you you have to as i think as a creator figure out that balance between what is planned right. and what is You know, unforeseeable and kind of magical when it happens.
0: There's very little spontaneity. It sounds like right in this song, in the production of it, at least, or at least in the final like recorded form. Totally, yeah. It doesn't have that punk or jazz to your comparison, right? Is that is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah,
1: but you know, I'm also seeing I'm also seeing lines between hip hop and Metallica here because, as you said, like that was like maybe the the ninth riff of the song. Yeah, and. Like, usually if you come up with a cool riff, if you come up with nine cool riffs, you might come up with nine cool songs and you might put that riff in the spotlight. But I'm reminded of how uh, a lot of Ludacris songs and a lot of Lil john songs, mm-hmm. like, you could argue that, at least in those two cases, they take <laughs> their verses could all be choruses. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. if you think of a, of a chorus in a hip hop song, it's like a riff but then you think about Lil John, like, think about your favorite Lil John song for a second. Think about like when he gets to the verse, like all those parts of the verse could be their own chorus, but he's like, nah, I'm throwing it all into this song. If you think about Get Low, okay. the sort of the the, the ultimate Lil John track, back it up, back, back it up, aw oh, snap, back, back, back it up, Ah oh, snap. Okay, this is not the chorus, but this could have been the chorus to a song. It's like another idea. It's like another idea where they're like, you know what? Let's just do Ludacris said he would actually work on his songs like this. Like he would be like, you know, I want people to be chanting along and singing along during the verse. So I'm gonna take like verse ideas, I mean chorus ideas and make them part of the verse. So But you're saying it's the
0: same musical bed, but with a new
1: lyrical and melodic. I'm just saying, you know, usually again, if you have nine great ideas for a chorus, you might try and write nine songs. What those two hip-hop artists did. And what <laughs> Hetfield, I guess, uh, Batalica yeah. did was like, no, I'm just going to put all these great ideas into one song because I've got so many great but ideas. But I just flashed and out a really cool uh,
0: interesting connection from that is that that's also a classic Max Martin technique. We were talking about Max Martin with yeah. the Britney Spears episode, yeah. right? For Toxic. Totally. But think about a lot of his songs. like Think about uh, My Loneliness Is Killing Me. That's the main chorus. Yeah. But at the end... She goes on to with the same musical bed. We have My Loneliness is Killing Me. I still believe I must confess that my loneliness is killing me now. It's like a second idea. That's another thing that happens in the Wasn't a lot of that the bridge well.
1: though? Like the part you're doing is. Lyrically sort of a bridge. it was. Yeah. But then
0: the music bed from the chorus. So these Hasn't sort of changed. interchangeable kind of components are rearranged in the song in a really interesting way.
1: I guess what we're saying, folks, is don't don't save anything for the next song. Throw it all <laughs> at the wall. From the window to the wall, just throw it all in. And that's how Lil
0: Jon and Britney Spears <laughs> and Metallica all
1: connect. <laughs> all right, final part is the vocals. You would call it singing your father, the, the, the Robins... In general, might call it screaming coming from Blake's (laughs) teenage Blake's room. But, uh, but Hetfield, he apparently really worked on his voice over the years. He
0: did, but not yet in this song. What you're gonna hear is pre work Metallica, (laughs) where he really is just shouting it, and the anger and the rage has not been matched with technique and saving your vocal cords from destruction. At this point, this is just you're only hearing the raw, young, angry. Christian scientist, you know, (laughs) uh, upbringing of James Hetfield. But you're right, later in life, and actually— Another shout out to this great documentary. Um, you know that's the beginning of him trying to learn to sing properly, and he becomes a really good singer. And now, when you see them perform live, he's still able to perform these songs, wow. and they sound the same. But you can even check, in, the 60s. He's in his sixties, it's richer. In his sixties, he's now, sixty right? now. Yeah, Woo. and his voice is richer than ever. He's obviously yeah. protecting it. It's mm-hmm. a smart move to learn how to sing properly. But at the time, these nodules galore, I'm sure, are going on <laughs> in those vocal cords.
1: Well, let's hear a little bit. Come cross- This might have been the other reason why I didn't want to listen to this song. Because the white guy's screaming, obey your master. I'm like, nah, I'm checking out. I want to out. talk
0: about this just for a minute. Because like if you watch any live footage of Metallica, <laughs> what happens in this song is Master, Master is being chanted by 50,000 mostly white people, with, mostly males, with their arms in the air. And, and spikes it's, on their wrists. It looks like Master master They're, they have a bunch of songs where there's a fist like there's die by my hand like yeah. this is a fucking rally in a way <laughs> and there's something about it that makes me uncomfortable and it's part of the reason why i took a minute for this show to remember that this is on my shortlist and, and to get to the point where i wanted to do the episode there's yeah. enough about this that is meaningful to me from my youth it's still music i like to listen to but there's something about its cultural yeah that i'm working through you're working through I'm working through right oh and here's a little fun moment this is uh this is right before the slow section It's just fun to hear these sort of like pre-pro tools tricks. I mean, they literally would—they're <laughs> like putting their it.
1: hand on the reel and slowing it down. That's what I'm
0: imagining. You know? Maybe they're using a delay, like an effect. Who knows? But it's just fun to listen to those sort of like. It sounds—it almost sounds like another David Bowie reference, like uh, like in Fame, right?
1: Very
0: true.
1: I never thought about that being uh, a, a, a tangible. Yeah, a mechanical trick. Yeah, a mechanical, trick. Yeah, a mechanical right. trick. Um in the post Lil Wayne era. I just think of it all as studio magic.
0: (laughs) Well, it is studio magic, but it's the old kind where you need to use your hands to make it happen. And of course, no episode of Metallica's master puppets would be complete without this. Laughter, laughter. So that's all happening during... Rick's Laughter at My Cries? Laughing at My Cries. Is this cries. a political
1: song? What is Master of Puppets actually about? That's a good question. I should question. have asked you this before we did an episode about it. <laughs> what is this song actually about? Gonna, In your opinion. Or is there a codified, everybody agrees opinion about what this song is? James is famously
0: like reticent about like, being explicit about what his songs are about. He uh-huh. has just talked about... He's, what I've heard him say many times is that it's about... It's uh, powerlessness, it's about addiction, and it's about control. I hear the
1: powerlessness. And by the way, I, it's I made. It's about being the, manipulated, actually. Yes, yeah, so I, yeah. I, I made the joke about, like, no, I don't want to hear a white guy screaming, obey your master. But <laughs> clearly, he is, I think, oh, yeah. singing from the point of view of the bad guy. That's Like, right. you know, He's whether, whether about- the. 50,000 fans are singing from that point. He is singing from the point of view of, like, you should not like the Master It's of the
0: untrustworthy narrator voice that you're mm-hmm. hearing. And I think yeah. that's, that's clear. I don't think, I think when you're listening, I mean, the lyrics are about, like, being succumbing to drugs or or maybe religion yeah. and mind control of, of many different I, I, I'm
1: reminded of the J.Ru, the Damages song, uh, You Can't Stop the Prophet, where J.Ru raps as himself, but then there's another voice, which is clearly J.Ru's manipulated voice, I believe, and uh, he's rapping as the purveyor of all the bad things of the black community. He's like, "Oh, you think you're going to defeat me, prophet?" <laughs> you know, like that. That is almost like a hip hop version right. of what I think. You know, yeah, but that's an interesting comparison they're doing on Master of because
0: also we just kind of heard that like low voice that was yeah. layered
1: in there saying, <laughs> Master,
0: Master, there's also like a master, like you know, he's overdubbing yeah, yeah. the regular, singing, yeah, shouting. this is not the, the good guy voice, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the evil guy voice. <laughs> and now, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell this amazing story about this next section of the song. Now, famously, this song has this moment we were just coming out of the slow section with the solo into the fast section with a faster solo. So James does a, a little slow one. Kirk's about to do a fast one. And this is how he introduces it. Famously, that's hard to hear, right? I'll play it one more time. So what is he saying in this moment? Well, it turns out many years ago... Free steak? I'll play it one more time before I play it for you isolated.
1: <laughs> Free steak is what I hear.
0: There is a longstanding question of what he's actually saying in the mix, which we're about to answer. But before I do that, what he says live is a little different and there's a funny story behind it, which I will now tell you. So the story goes that Anthrax and Metallica are touring together many years ago and it's, they're having breakfast and it's, it's it's Charlie from Anthrax and, and Cliff from Metallica. And Charlie says to Cliff, like, okay, I've always wondered this. What exactly is James saying in that moment before the big solo, before Kirk takes his big solo, what does he say? And apparently, uh, Cliff Burton turns him and goes, pancakes. And so now, for the rest of Metallica's career, they say pancakes in that moment. <laughs> I'll play that for you guys real quick. Here it is. Pancakes go, pancakes go is what he says <laughs> to this day because of what Charlie and Cliff talked about. This is an inside joke for many years. I'll play one more time. pancakes go so now at long last here is what james is actually saying in the famous pancakes go moment fix me it's me fix me fix me fix me wow
1: so he let fix me go to say pancakes go
0: now it's just an inside joke for
1: 30 years (laughs) (laughs) which i think is pretty awesome that actually is you know Hey, you learned something new. And you I feel like people are really learning something new on this episode. <laughs> That's the whole goal. We are here to educate. Fix me is now pancakes go.
0: Pancakes go, fix me. Now you know. Now what does Charlie from Anthrax didn't even know that? So now you know it. Even I know.
1: Even I know that. <laughs> uh one thing about Metallica is that they still play live and they're like 60. I think we mentioned this earlier. What is it like for you as a fan to see these emblems of angry youth get old.
0: I think it's great. So I think we grew up in an era when like rock and roll was still like relatively new in a weird way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's rock and roll begins arguably in the early 50s. By the time, you know, we, what I remember when Mick Jagger turned 40 and it was on the radio, like Mick Jagger is 40. And
1: like, that was a big deal. Cause, <laughs> we like have, in the 70s. <laughs> Cause we have
0: this idea right from, from the who in the late 60s. Right, I hope right. I die before I get old. There's this whole yeah. idea that rock and roll,
1: Is a club of of 27 and all that stuff. There can
0: only, like rock and roll equals youth. And if you're not young, you can't like or listen to or play rock and roll. Well, clearly we've destroyed that many times over in the ensuing decades. It's just
1: because Phil Collins won't die. (laughs) Is it, is, it, is it fun to see these guys uh, grow old? Are they a nostalgia act? I mean, like, I think that it's okay to go see a group when they're up there, right? I think what I'm literally investigating in this episode of this show, in the same way
0: that the existence of this band is investigating, mm-hmm. and kind of that documentary is investigating, is what happens with this music yeah. as a maker of it, listener of it, fan of it, like, when you're no longer a teenager. Right. When you're no longer even in your 20s. When you're no longer pushing, like, in your third, Like, what...
1: It, <laughs> Does it get embarrassing to it, rap kind or of, sing about the things that you thought were great when you were 17 and had no kids?
0: I think the short answer is a little bit, a little bit embarrassing because... But here's the thing. To be really vulnerable and to and to answer you in real time, uh-huh. it's because it evokes that teenager mm-hmm. who's still in me. Yeah. And who I want to honor. And, like, I'm so... Much happier at the age I am. It does get better, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I'm a much happier grown up and father, and like life has gotten better. So I kind of want to reach out to that. And maybe by when I literally bring in the album that I had when I was a teenager Mm -hmm. and just think back with this physical object, I want to embrace that, you know, teenage me and say, you know, it does get better, but those feelings are also okay to have, and it's okay to grow with anger and rage and kind of reconfigure it. They're still singing angry songs with angry music, but they are happy people, and that is okay. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. In fact, embracing that maybe is what we should all aspire to.
1: I I I think that's a very good point.
0: So, Diallo, I kind of want to flip this back on you. This episode has been a lot what of me hell? talking, and I want everything that you've said has been so interesting <sighs> to me. I want to like develop some of these a little bit more deeply. Okay, for example. I know you grew up with hip-hop. What was it like seeing such a young genre go gray? In the same way that rock and roll has aged, so too has Jay-Z. Yeah. krs one
1: True. But, you know, um, I think, unfortunately, I didn't get to see and we didn't get to see a lot of our hip-hop stars grow up. You know, a lot of them didn't make 40. You know, Uh, two of the biggest ones of all time didn't make 26. Yeah. We've said on the show before, it's amazing to think of how young Tupac and Biggie were when they both – uh, ushered off this mortal coil. So I think that it's, uh, I think it's a privilege to grow old and, and, and retire, so to speak, you know? And, um, and, and I think that some of it is, um, you know, rebellious white youth, I, I find, you know, to use the broadest of strokes, aren't all, their, their, their targets, if you will, Mm -hmm. are not always the same as black rebellious hmm. youth i mean like you know i always found it so interesting and i've heard you say it on this episode the amount of people who rage against their parents yeah and i can i was thinking about that i can't think of one kid in my school who talked bad about their mom or their dad i mean if anything you know mom and dad if they were in the picture like you tended to love them i mean yeah. like you know i, I that's think that's really interesting. i mean like I've, i told somebody a long time ago when you're black and you're growing up in lower middle-class neighborhood like i was it wasn't even middle class we were, we were lower middle class um the rebellion is success if that makes wow. sense you know it's, it's more okay. akin to uh 50 success cent Success culturally or success Did, no i mean like money i mean like yeah you know to a certain and this isn't again this isn't everybody but the idea like 50 cent named his album get rich or die trying like mm-hmm. if anything to get comfort um uh, not even always status, but just to be comfortable, uh, you know, and to for your family to be comfortable. I, I think, you know, that's why the Cosby Show was so, you know, had such a big impression on us growing up. Because, like, it was like a black family that wasn't struggling. It wasn't good times. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, right, Which is a show before my time. But, like, it, they weren't struggling. They They seemed very comfortable and happy. That was the rebellion, to get to that place of happiness. So, no, I didn't hear a whole bunch of... Black kids, like, ragging on their parents saying, like, I hate you, Mom! You know, like, didn't hear a lot of that. That's interesting. And and so I think that rebellion takes different shapes depending on where you find yourself in the prevailing society.
0: Did you have music for the emotion of anger? Because you mentioned before that within hip-hop... Yeah, I mean, you would
1: rage against, you know, look, you would rage against the police. You know, I think it's funny that one of the only, you know... Uh, metal bands that I had exposure to was Body Count and their and their song Cop Killer. You know, what yeah. I mean, like you know, as controversial as that song absolutely was. I mean, it said. I mean, you could argue it determined like you know political the way people voted and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think people raged against authority, but it was just different authority. You didn't rage against your parents; you raised against, raged against the government and you know police officers and the system, whatever that meant to yeah. you you know like that that was what people talked about you know um whatever Whatever force you felt was keeping you down. And I guess for white kids, that was your parents. I just didn't see it. I didn't hear it. When
0: you had a dark mood. So, like, I'm just thinking about tracing my dark mood when I was 13 would have been I might have locked myself in the room listening to Joy Division, right? When I'm in a dark mood and when I'm 15, 16, it's Metallica. When I'm in a dark mood in my 20s, maybe it's Portishead. What dark mood music is your go to? And those are all different. They're not all aggressive.
1: You know, again, I I never want to speak on the behalf of the black community writ large because the black community is not monolithic. But um you know i will say that there was so much dark stuff going on you know that you didn't even have to like you know you know there were there were shootings at my junior high school prom you know like there there was so much darkness going wow. on that i think in some ways the music was the escape for that so in the music i got money i got a car you know like if it wasn't material it was like you know public enemy style like i'm raging against the system that's you know keeping my people down like there were different ways to go about it but we didn't come to the music for the darkness cuz we didn't need to find the darkness darkness was everywhere you know on on my show uh southside that i created as as a writer um, you know, we went out of our way to not have characters on the South side of Chicago deal with like characters getting killed or if I, vi- I don't turn on curb Your enthusiasm for that stuff. So I'm not going to write a show with my almost all black cast and deal with, Oh, there was a shooting in this episode and somebody died in this episode. We get enough of that. If we want to strike a balance, no, we're going to find something else. So you ask about where do we go for dark emotions? I think, The way to deal with dark emotions when there's darkness all around you is to find some light. And I think that that is the light that you'll find in the music that was popular where I was growing up.
0: I'm speechless. That was great. Thank you for that answer.
1: Okay, Luxury. Uh, To end this discussion, is there anything else that needs to be said about Master of Puppets? I think
0: we've said enough. Uh, Let's let Mr. Hetfield himself have the last laugh, if you will. I think they got the whole band in there. Wait, I heard something funny in there. Did you hear? (laughs) (laughs) And then there's like a high-pitched one. (laughs) Yeah. It's feeling like Halloween.
1: Uh, (laughs) Luxury held me in this thing. I am producer... DJ and songwriter. Luxury. And I am actor, writer, director, and speaks for all black people, Diallo Riddle. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: this has been one song. Remember, you can find us on socials. I am at Luxury, L-U-X-X-U-R-Y on Instagram or L-U-X-X-U-R-Y. X-X on TikTok. And what about you, Diallo? I
1: am at Diallo, at D-I-A-L-L-O on Instagram or at Diallo Riddle on TikTok. And
0: if you like this show, please give us five stars on Apple and... leave a little nice review those really help actually you know, <laughs> and if you're your friends. thinking one star just stay off the computer for a little stay off the computer don't even, <laughs> don't
1: even go there this has been One Song we will see you next time this episode was produced by Matthew Nelson with engineering from Marcus Hom additional production support from Leslie Guam Charles Childers and Alicia Shimada the show is executive produced by Kevin Hart Ty Randolph Mike Stein Brian Smiley Eric Eddings and Eric Weil. Unsatisfying <laughs>